her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head set heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is but to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where, uh, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for this picture into the heavens, uh, this vision of what is going on when all the mess that we see on earth, uh, when we see good, when we see bad, we we see that from your word that there is much more going on. We pray now that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts, that we may hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wonder for all of you whether you read the end of the book before you get there. You start by reading the end. My mother-in-law does. She says she always reads the end of the book because that's the only way you know whether it's worth reading. And, and there's, really, there's really something to that. Now, you may not, some people have strong opinions about this. You may not approve of that in book reading. But, uh, but there's a lot to that in life, that knowing the end makes a really big difference. One of the things that's really hard in life is that we don't know how things are going to turn out. We don't know when a child's crying in the middle of the night, whether they're ever going to stop. We don't know when a sickness begins, is it going to end quickly? When a relationship becomes difficult, is there going to be quick healing and reconciliation? Or is this going to be a lifelong struggle? When we get into a tough job situation, we don't know. We don't know. Things, things don't go so well. Uh, you've been there for weeks or months or a year. And things don't go so well, you think, well, 
how is this going to end up? If I know that this is going to be great in a couple of years, then I can power through. But if not, I just want to get out. And so knowing the end makes a really big difference when, when we're facing trials, when we're facing struggles. It helps to know the end. We can deal with a lot more. And fundamentally, that's what we have here in Revelation 12. We don't, like I said before, we don't need to, see, to understand every detail to see the main message of Christmas. The main message as we enter into the Christmas season, into the Advent season, as we wait for Christmas, as we look forward to it, we see the message is that Christ has come and Christ has won. That is the message of this chapter in Revelation and that is the message of Christmas, that Christ has come and Christ has won. We know how this story ends. There may be some suffering along the way. There will be suffering along the way. There will be waiting and a long period of waiting. In Advent, it's a time of waiting, a time of preparation. And during this season, we recognize that life is challenging. There are struggles. There are hardships. But the ultimate end is secure. The ultimate end is secure. Christ has come and Christ has won. And that's the main, that's the main message of this passage, and that's clear enough. But like every, every biblical passage, there's so much more to be found there as we dig in. So we're actually going to take three passes through this passage as we see some of the implications of Christ having already won and that we get to know this already. So first, we're going to look at the sequence of events as we go through the passage looking at the sequence. And then second, we're going to look at some of the characters. And then finally, we're going to look at a couple key verses that stand out and tell us something wonderful coming out of this passage. So first, the sequence of events. If you look back at the passage with me, first we see the birth of the child. Uh, the birth of the child. We do, again, we don't, we don't know all the details here. We don't, I, I don't understand all the details. I know something about a woman with 12 stars. That's the people of God. That's God's work in history throughout the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of his church. We, we know that 12 represents God's people in his church. Now, and we're not going to, we can't, we can't match up one for one all the details of this, either with the Christmas story that happened in the past or one in the future. But we see that a child is being born. Of course, that, that is clear enough that that is Jesus, the Lord who was born, the one who all the nations with a rod of iron. And God protects that child, even in the face of difficulty. And then we see that there's war in heaven that this, this birth of the child to rule all the nations, the coming of Jesus to rule the world, was not met easily by Satan, by the great dragon. He, he was not pleased. And that's what's going on behind the scenes. We see it in the Christmas story. We see Herod, uh, Herod the king, seeking to kill the child Jesus. But that was not just some earthly power-hungry king. We see from Revelation, that was Satan behind the scenes, wanting to end this plan of God. And it's not the only way that he attacks. In fact, it says there's great war in heaven. Great war between Satan and his angels and Michael, the archangel of God, and his angels. But who wins the war? Of course, Michael and his angels. The angels of God threw them down. And then there's the victory chant. The victory chant, of course, giving praise not to the angels, but giving praise to God. In verse 10, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Thrown down. The victory chant. It's over. 
Right there, already. That's all there is to it. The war is over. But, but the story doesn't end there. The dragon has lost. He's been thrown down, but he comes to earth. And then he chases the woman. He chases her, not because he can win. He's been cast down, but he chases her in anger. He chases the church. He chases the people of God. And he chases the woman. But we see in the chase of the woman, we see the details like some sci-fi movie or something like that. As the woman was given the wings of an eagle and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth and the earth opened up the mouth and swallowed the river. So we see that, that as, as Satan being thrown down out of heaven, as he makes war on the people of God, that God protects him. God protects his people. He protects the woman here, the people of God, protects them from the attacks of the dragon. But there's one more turn. There's one more piece of this story, the fifth act. He gives up on the church. He cannot defeat it, but he turns on her offspring. That's what it says in verse 17. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that, unfortunately, is us. That even though Satan has been thrown down out of heaven, even though the victory has been won, even though Satan cannot stop the people of God, the church as a whole, he still makes war on the individuals. And from there we see the pain and suffering that we see throughout much of life. We see the mess of the world as Satan continues to make war. And we see that in the story. Even though the victory is won, it's settled, it's secure, the fight continues. The cleanup action continues as Satan continues to make war on his offspring. But because Christ has come, because we know this is sure, we can have confidence in the future. We know where this is going. And we know that this is sure. This is not just a story, a vision of what will happen in the past, because this already has happened. While there's parts of Revelation that apply to the future and things that will come, there's a strong, the, the biggest part of Revelation is pulling back the curtain to see ultimate reality. That's why we, can't, we don't need to match up all the details with this or that, because it's the picture of ultimate reality. And we know that God has kept his promises. We know that for thousands of years, for, and particularly for hundreds of years after God's people had gone into exile in the Old Testament, the people of God had sinned and disobeyed him, and they had been sent off into exile, and he had promised them a savior. He promised them that one was coming to restore them. And for hundreds of years, they waited. They waited for that promised Savior. They waited for the King to come and rescue them. And God kept that promise. God kept that promise. That's what we remember in Advent was the wait, is the waiting, the time of waiting and preparation. But we know that that promise was kept. Jesus was born. It really happened. God entered into history and Jesus was born. He was born and then he went on to live his life and teach and do his miracles and signs and wonders to show that he was from God and ultimately die to save his people, to be the king. And we'll see that more even in this passage in a few minutes. But we know that God kept that promise. So we can be sure that when God says that the victory has won, that Satan has been thrown down, that this will not last forever, we can have confidence in the future. And it's amazing what that confidence will do for us. You may have heard, because it's a famous, a famous psychological study, you may have heard of the marshmallow test. 
took place in the 60s and 70s at Stanford University, a group of researchers. They took children and they were, they were measuring their self-control. And so what they did is they would take them into the room and they would put a marshmallow in front of them. And they would tell them, you can have this marshmallow now, but if you wait, if you wait for 15 minutes, then you can have two marshmallows. And so then they observed, then they left the room and they observed them and they observed, the point was to see what kind of self-control the children would have and observe how, how many of them would just take the marshmallow and how many of them could really wait. And some of them clearly struggled. They might close their eyes or turn away from the marshmallow or just kind of stroke it. And some of them ate the marshmallow right away as soon as the tester left the room. Some of them tried to hold out and, but gave in. And some of them had the self-control to wait 15 minutes and then got two marshmallows. Self-control and delayed gratification. And not surprisingly, the older the children were, the better they were at delayed gratification. But the reason this became a famous study is not just because of the observations of self-control and delayed gratification, but because the researcher, over the years, he tracked the children. The children who had demonstrated greater levels of self-control and ability to delay gratification. And in coming years, he managed to correlate those who had waited for the marshmallow with much higher levels of general success and happiness in life. And it was fascinating. It's a famous study. But then just a two, two years ago, I heard another pastor point out that there was another study. Follow, so of course, you know, anytime there's a great study, people follow up with it and try to replicate it and do other experiments. In 2012 at the University of Rochester, researchers repeated the marshmallow experiment, but they changed it slightly. And the change they made was they divided the children into two groups. And in one group, the researcher first established himself as trustworthy. He made a promise, and he kept that promise. And then he gave them the marshmallow, and he said, if you wait 15 minutes, you'll get a second one. And in the other group, the researcher first made a promise and broke that promise. And then he gave them the marshmallow and said, if you wait 15 minutes, you'll get a second one. Well, what do you think happened? far more, I, I, don't, I believe it was four times as likely the group that had had the researcher that kept his promise were able to wait for the marshmallow. Whereas the group that experienced the broken promise, they didn't wait for the marshmallow, they just took the marshmallow that was in front of them. And so these researchers from the University of Rochester, their theory, and I think it's a pretty good one, is that the differences that had been observed in the first marshmallow experiment were not, and, and including the lifelong outcomes of, of it, were not necessarily due as much to innate differences in self-control and ability to delay gratification, though there certainly is some of that, but into the environment that the subjects were experiencing. Were they in an environment where they could be confident in the outcomes? And that is what makes the difference. And that fits, of course, with what we see in, in life in general, that people who have that confidence in their environment, that they know that people are keeping promises to them, they have confidence in how things will work out. They can delay gratification. They can deal with suffering. Whether it's the small suffering of waiting for a marshmallow that you want to eat and waiting 15 more minutes, or whether it's the larger suffering of being able to put aside money now and not spend it to save it for later, or deal with hard things, with sickness, with job uncertainty, with hard relationships. All of that is far, far easier if we know the ultimate outcome. And so what does that mean for us? We have here the ultimate outcome. So when we run into hardships in life, 
whatever our own experiences with other people are, we can seek to ground ourselves in the promises of God and his faithfulness. We know, I can stand up here and say, yes, God kept his promise on Christmas. He kept his promise. He sent the Savior. He sent Jesus to reveal himself to us. But this is not just something that we hear once and then it's done. This is something that we have to ground ourselves in day after day. In prayer, we come back to God and remind ourselves of his promise. In reading scripture, in looking at them and reminding ourselves of his promises in scripture. We can look back in our days. There's a, a spiritual discipline called the examine, where at the end of each day, you look back and you look explicitly for ways that God has been faithful to you through the day and name those ways. Say, you know what? God was faithful to me today. As we look back, even just having my family and I just having moved here, and we see all the ways that it worked out, all the details of moving and of transitioning from one pastoral role in Atlanta to a new pastoral role here and selling houses and buying houses and loading moving trucks and unloading moving trucks and children in schools and new schools. And we look back and see all the details. We say, God has been faithful. And so when we find ourselves in the, in the future in uncertain situations, we can say, you know what? We told our children this many times as we prepared to move. We said, look, God was faithful to us in Atlanta. He gave us friends. He gave us a house. He gave us good teachers. He will be faithful to us in Virginia Beach. And we can know that as we face new situations. We have the promises of God in the Bible, and we can see how they've been worked out in our lives. So we can look forward, even in the midst of hardship and uncertainty, and expect that God will be active. God will work in our lives. He will work things out. We don't know exactly what it will look like, but we trust and know that God will work things out. So that's what we see from the sequence of events. We see that Christ has come, and we can have confidence in the future because he has won the battle. But there's more to see here from the characters. I see six characters in this story. I may have missed some, but I see six. So there's the woman, the people of God, there's the dragon, Satan, the serpent. There's the child that was to be born to rule the nations, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior and King. There's Michael and his angels, the heavenly forces of God. There's the dragon's angels, the, forces, the heavenly forces of evil, fighting with one another. And then there's the woman's offspring. And I mentioned already in verse 17, us as individuals, not the church as a whole, unstoppable and unmovable, but us as individuals feeling weak and vulnerable and the, the face of the dragon's wrath. And so we see all these characters and what we see from it is, is that, my, that the dragon and his angels, they cannot touch the woman. They cannot touch the child. They fought with Michael and his angels, but they lost. So all that is left is for them to fight with the offspring of the woman, with us, to make war on us and to cause us pain and suffering and hardship. But whose side are we on? There's only two sides in this battle. And we see that we're not on the side of the dragon and his angels. We are on the side of the woman and the child and Michael and his angels. We're on the winning side. There's only two sides in this battle and we're on the winning side. So when we experience the hardship of life and the suffering of life, it's not because we're on the losing side. 
It's not because God is out to get us. It's because Satan is thrashing about. That's all that he has left. He is a defeated dragon and he is thrashing about in the last throes of his death. And the image that I always think of with this is from the Lord of the Rings. If you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, the Fellowship of the Rings, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring and the Fellowship that they're carrying the ring, Frodo and his comrades and Gandalf and Aragorn and all of them, and they're traveling through the mines of Moria, the dark and scary place. And they're going and they're going and they make their way right to the end of the mines. They fought the cave troll, they fought the orcs, they've run along the narrow path and they get to the end and finally they run up against the greatest enemy of all, the Balrog, the great fiery demon come out of the deeps of Moria and the Balrog comes after him, after them. And the fellowship, the hobbits and the elf and the dwarf, they fly along the bridge and they get to the exit and Gandalf the wizard turns back to face the Balrog. Well, who wins? Gandalf wins. He defeats the Balrog. He destroys the bridge and sends the Balrog to his doom. He sends him down into the abyss. He's won. But what happens? As the Balrog falls, as he thrashes about, his whip comes crawling up and his whip wraps around Gandalf's knees and he pulls him down into the abyss and Gandalf falls. But it wasn't that the Balrog won. He was defeated. He had fallen. It was just his thrashing about. The victory was secure, but the thrashing was painful. Gandalf really fell. Gandalf really suffered and died even though it was just a thrashing about. So when we see the hardship and suffering in the world, whether it's in our lives or whether it's just in the world out there, there's a lot of mess in the world, a lot of persecution of Christians in other countries, a lot of random attacks in various places that cause us fear and anxiety, and they really hurt. When we see those things, we can see both. We can say both. We can say Satan is defeated. This is just his thrashing about. The end is sure. The victory is certain. But we can also say, this really hurts. There's real pain in Satan's thrashing. It causes real, real pain and suffering. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, don't let anyone tell you that the Christian life is easy. It's not. Don't hear me saying that when I say that the victory is secure, that God has won. I am not saying that this life is easy. I'm saying we can have hope. We can know our future certainty. But the life we live now, there is pain. There is hardship. So it's not that we minimize that. It's not that we can eliminate it. But we can face that pain and suffering with confidence in the future. And confidence that we have a God who loves us and cares for us and knows us. Because there's one more part of this story. I said we had the sequence of events and we had the characters. But then there's some verses that stand out. And I've alluded to them a little bit already. But they're the verses that mention us. I already mentioned verse 17, the rest of her offspring. That's us. We showed up in this story. It's not just a story about cosmic events. It's a story that includes us, where we are seen and recognized. But that wasn't the only one. Look back at verses 11 and 12. Actually, you've got to start at verse 10 to understand it. So in verse 10, the victory chant, uh, for the, in the middle of that verse, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers. So this is, this is the voice in heaven 
the voices, it's not even entirely clear who the voices are, but we know who the brothers are, right? The accuser of our brothers and sisters, that's us again. That's, we are the ones who Satan accuses, who Satan says, you're not good enough. You failed. It's not going to work out. Those are the accusations of Satan. He is the accuser of us, of our brothers and sisters. But it gets even more interesting. So that, that's where we show up. That's the brothers. Verse 11, and they, well, that's still got to be the brothers, right? So that's talking about us again. We're, we're in this story, this story of heavenly conflict and cosmic fight. And they have conquered him. This story of Michael and his angels fighting Satan says that God's people, the brothers and sisters, the people of God, we are the ones who conquered Satan. But how? Conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So when we put our faith in Jesus, when we look at Jesus and the blood of the lamb, when we look at Jesus and say, he died for us. He is working. He has saved me from the clutches of Satan. We are conquering Satan. And when we look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you, will get, you have the power through your life that you have given to me, you give me the power to do right, to do good, to love others, to face, patient, to face suffering with patience and perseverance. That is the way that Satan is conquered. So Satan has been thrown down by the angels in heaven, by the power of God, and he has no more power. He has no ultimate power. But the way that victory is worked out is through us. Through us, through our lives, through our actions, through God at work in us. This is not our doing. This is God at work in us, but we are part of this story. God sees us and God uses us. So this is not just an abstract story about far off things that we might get to jump into at the end. This is a story that we are in right now, participating in the defeat of Satan through our faith in Jesus, through our trust in his death for us, through our, uh, through our using his power in our lives to do good and love others. And then there's one more here in verse 12. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Satan's been thrown down. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. That is the sympathy and compassion of God for us. He sees us, he uses us, and he sees the suffering that we're going through. He has compassion on us. He has experienced it all. When we see, uh, when we see the Christmas story, when we see Jesus come and be born in a manger and then live his life, one of the things that means for us is this cosmic event that Christ has won. Christ has come and Christ has won. Satan has been thrown down. But the other part of Jesus coming to earth is that he knows. He gets it. Even in this cosmic story, it's mentioned the sympathy and compassion for us on earth and the recognition in the coming of Jesus that he lived the life that we live. He experienced life as a baby, life as a child, life as an adult seeking to do his work as a carpenter, carpenter's son. Life as an adult seeking to follow God and not knowing where he was going to lay his head. 
That's what the Bible says about Jesus. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He experienced a very simple life of suffering. He did not have pleasures and luxuries. He experienced it with us. He experienced betrayal. He experienced unjust authorities. He experienced it all. So he can sympathize with us. The Bible says in Hebrews that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted like us in every respect. So whether it's suffering from the outside, whether it's temptations from the insides that we face, we know that Christ is with us and Christ has won. So we can take confidence in that. So knowing the end here gives us strength to finish this book, to keep living through this life. Much of life is not a Christmas card. In fact, much of the Christmas story is not fit for our Christmas card. The birth in the manger, not, not really. We may make it pretty on the Christmas card, but the woman giving birth in the stable is not really what we would talk about on our Christmas cards, I don't think. Even those chosen to hear the angel's message, the angel's message of hope and salvation, today for you a Savior has been born, given to the shepherds out in the fields. Not exactly the high class of society. The wise men come bringing gifts. That would be good. We like gifts at Christmas, but followed behind by an evil king bent on destruction. And we see those things over and over again in, in the world today. But Christ has come. He lived it. He knows it. He understands it. Christ has come and Christ has won. And that is our hope and confidence in Christmas. I had a, a funny experience uh, a few weeks ago. I was praying for a friend in the hospital and her husband is actually an atheist. And we were just talking a little bit and we were talking about, uh, I think we were talking about college football. We're, we're in Atlanta. Everybody there talks about college football. Um, and I made the comment that I like dynasties. I kind of like the dynasty. I kind of like the teams that win year after year. And he kind of smirked and he said, well, you're in the right profession for that. And I was like, I think that was a bit of a jab. Because I think of the church and of pastors as being for the underdog. I mean, that's, the church is for those that Jesus came for the poor and the oppressed and those who are down and out. I'm, I'm not, I like dynasties in sports, but in life I'm, I'm for the underdog. And so I just, I let it go, of course, at the time, but it was a little, a little tweak there. But then I was thinking about this just this morning. I thought, you know what? There's a sense in which, though not in the way that he was thinking about it, I don't think, but there's a truth to it. Even though we are on the side of the underdog, even though Jesus came for the poor and the oppressed and those who are down and out, we're part of a dynasty. We're part of the ultimate dynasty. And we can have confidence in that. And when you see those dynasties in sports, those football teams, they walk out onto the field, they know they're going to win because they're the best because they've done it year after year. And we can walk out in confidence even in the face of suffering and hardship. And we can love people and we can serve people and we can walk with patience knowing that we're part of a dynasty because Christ has come and Christ has won. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that you give us this look into the future. We thank you that you give us hope in that and that you give us the strength to persevere. And we pray now as we continue to worship you that you would seal this into our hearts. And as we go out through this week, we pray that you would give us confidence in your victory, confidence that all the suffering that we see, painful as it is, is the thrashing of Satan. And may we walk into that 
with confidence and perseverance and love and service. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now have the opportunity to uh, take up our